We are in uh, Matthew's gospel today, chapter one. We're just doing a couple of sermons for the Christmas season, and so I invite you to be finding Matthew chapter one, and we will look at verses 18 through 23. Now, most of you know that one of the responsibilities I have as a pastor is to visit hospitals. In fact, I was just told this morning of someone who is in the hospital, and so having not known that before this morning, I will make a visit this afternoon. And those hospital visits range in emotions. That is, more times than not, somebody is in the hospital because they are sick or do not feel good, and so they are not in the best of moods. Sometimes it is worse than that. Sometimes they are near death, and they know it, and the family knows it, and so it is a very somber time in the hospital. At other times, it's actually a joyous visit. That is, there are occasions where I go into a hospital room for a happy occasion, and that is, of course, with the birth of a baby. And so hospital visits range all the way from the joy of a new birth to the sorrow of a soon-coming death. Now, I have learned through my years of visiting the hospital several things about what to and not to do in a hospital visit. For example, for a newborn... I learned long ago that I do not make that visit on the day the child is born. No mother wants to see me after hours of labor. Therefore, I always make that visit on the next day after she's had some time to rest and after they've gotten just a little bit acclimated to their new addition to their family. I've also learned in those visits in a newborn situation that there really aren't a lot of questions to ask. There are some things we talk about. We normally talk about the time of birth. We talk about the height and weight. Everybody wants to know that, how many inches they were and how much they weighed. But that's pretty much it, other than the question that always arises, which one of us do you think he or she looks like? And I always say, he looks like a baby. That's That's what they look like. I mean, let's just be honest. But beyond that, there are not a lot of questions to ask. I don't want to go into the details. I don't ask questions about why did you have a C-section versus natural birth. I don't want to know those things. I don't come into the room and say, is this the father? It's not an appropriate question to ask. I don't say, could you tell me how this happened? Those are just questions that are going to lead to information that I don't want and information that, frankly, I don't need. When it comes to engagements, we want all the details. Tell us how you got engaged and don't leave anything out. When it comes to a birth, we don't want all of that because it is not our business. It's too much information. But that is not the case when we come to the birth of Jesus. This virgin birth that we celebrate every year, and both of those words are important. We do not celebrate merely the birth of Jesus. We celebrate the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, you might be tempted to conclude that this is a theological debate best left for seminary students or pastors to talk about at the coffee shop. And while it might be interesting for some, it is not important for you. 
What with all that is going on in the world, do I really need to think about whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin? What with all that's going on in my life, do I really need to consider what is taking place in this initial Christmas scene and whether or not it is truly a virgin birth? Well, this is not the Christmas message I need. Some of you might be concluding, but I want to share with you this morning that it is an important issue. Larry King, and those of you who are old enough will remember him, Larry King was a very famous radio uh, talk show or television talk show host. He interviewed a lot of people. And so he was asked on one occasion, if you could select any person across all of history to interview, who would it be? Now, again, Larry King had interviewed thousands of people throughout his career. So who is the one person that you would want to interview if you could interview anybody? And his answer was, Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, the questioner followed that up with a second question. He said, okay, if you could interview Jesus Christ, what would you like to ask him? What's the one question that if you got the one interview that you would ask? And Larry King said, I would like to ask if indeed he was virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Now, keep in mind that to my knowledge, Larry King is not a believer, and yet he understands that if indeed Jesus Christ is born of a virgin, it would define history for him. This is a cornerstone, not only of our Christmas celebration, but this is a cornerstone of Christianity. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now again, you might be asking yourself, what difference does this make? I realize the the Christmas story. I've heard this and Luke chapter 2 read numerous times throughout my life. In fact, I visited the hospital this week. And as I was walking into the lobby of the hospital, there was a small gathering of people, I know not what for, but they were reading Luke chapter 2. They were reading the Christmas story. So we've heard these verses before, no doubt. So what difference does it really make? Is it really important that we understand the details surrounding the birth of Christ? Well, we can certainly disagree on the significance of the gifts that were presented 
We can have a debate as to how long after the birth of Christ the Magi or the wise men came to visit Jesus. But we dare not question this cornerstone, not only of Christmas, but of Christianity. And that is the virgin birth of Christ. So why should you and I believe that Jesus was, in fact, born of a virgin? Well, first of all, we need to believe this because it is affirmed in Scripture. And while there are not a host of verses that talk about this, there are these two, Matthew and Luke, both recount this incident for us. Frankly, once would have been enough, but we have two versions of this miraculous birth in the New Testament. Well, first of all, we notice that the Old Testament prophesied the virgin birth of Christ. The text here is quoted is Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Now, we do not have to go back to Isaiah because Matthew quotes it virtually verbatim and in full. Verse 23, behold, this is the quote, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You may find that blocked off or italicized in your Bibles. That is telling you that this is a quote from somewhere else. Again, this case, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Now, we know historically, that is when we go back to Isaiah, We know that Isaiah is referring to a time during the reign of wicked King Ahaz in Judah. He filled Jerusalem with with idol worship. He even burned his own son as a sacrifice to a god named Molech. And so the king of Syria and the king of Israel were intent on replacing Ahaz with someone else that they could then hope that he would follow them. So instead of turning to God, that is, these two other kings are against him, and instead of turning to God, Ahaz sought support and refuge from the Assyrians. And therefore, God sent a prophet by the name of Isaiah to confront Ahaz, though Ahaz would not listen. Eventually, God gave Isaiah these words that we've just read, as a way of confirming his promise that there would always be a descendant upon the throne of David. The nation might have been defeated, but God's promises were still in force and they would be fulfilled. Now, there has been much debate throughout Christian history about the word that Isaiah used that is translated here, virgin, as to whether or not that word could also mean something else. That is, is it in the domain of that word's entomology to translate it correctly as young woman rather than specifically a virgin? And while the argument goes beyond the scope of our purpose this morning, Matthew does not quote the very first portion of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The very first portion of that verse says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So this birth is to be a sign. Now, what kind of sign would it have been if it is merely a young woman giving birth to a child? That's no spectacular sign, as every woman who's had a child in this auditorium this morning could testify. That's just the normal course of things. It happens all of the time. The sign was not the birth of a child. The sign was the unusual nature of this, ver- of this birth. So besides all of this, Matthew clearly says, all of this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So Matthew, writing these words, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognized that the Old Testament prophesied that a virgin would bear a child, and we know that child to be Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament prophesied the virgin birth. But notice also that the New Testament recorded the virgin birth. Again, both Matthew and Luke specifically say that this was the nature of the birth of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 18. Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 20, he says it again, that this birth was by the Holy Spirit. He says also that this occurred before Mary and Joseph had come together. Now, you know what that means. It is obviously referring to the fact that they had had no sexual relationship prior to her conception and ultimately the birth of Christ. In fact, they were not even married as we would call it today. They were engaged. Now, their engagements were different from our own. These engagements were a commitment and they were a very serious matter. So even though the actual wedding had not taken place, The engagement is in process, and this is a time of probation. It was a time to test the fidelity of the relationship. This period was taken so seriously that any breach of this engagement was considered a divorce. Now, we talk about breaking off an engagement, but we don't call that a divorce, But in the first century, they called it a divorce. You see that in verse 19, where it is said that Joseph was considering a quiet divorce. So while they had not consummated the marriage, they were, in fact, committed to the union. And then we find another indication in verse 25, that Matthew tells us there that Joseph had no union with Mary until after Jesus was born. So just so there is no confusion on this issue, Mary and Joseph did not consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. And Matthew could not be any clearer about this, giving multiple statements in the space of these few verses, all attesting to the same thing. Now, can you imagine how hard this must have been for both Mary and Joseph she knew that she was a virgin, for Luke's account says her that she spoke to the angel by saying, how will this be, for I am a virgin. We heard that sung this past Sunday night when the choir, by the way, did a tremendous job in our Christmas musical, but one of the songs they sang was a song where Mary is singing, and she quotes this verse, how can this be, for I am a virgin. She would still have to face, of course, all of the scorn and criticism from her hometown crowd. Whether you've lived in a small town or not, you know how word can quickly spread in a small town about any kind of gossip. Juicy gossip at that. And clearly the pregnancy of a young girl who is not yet married would have qualified for that gossip. Joseph, the Bible tells us, was a righteous man and wanted to quietly put an end to this engagement. Now, he did not have to do that. He did not have to do this quietly. He was trying to be nice to her, even though we have to assume what he was assuming. He was assuming that she had been unfaithful to him because that's the only natural way for her to be in this situation. 
And he did not have to quietly put her away. He could have ended this very publicly. In fact, he could have called for her death. That was the punishment for what he assumed that she was involved in. But instead, he accepted by faith the word of the angel that Mary was indeed pregnant, but that pregnancy was by the Holy Spirit. Now, have you ever thought about how much faith that must have taken on Joseph's part to not only hear the report of the angel, but to actually believe it? Verse 24 simply tells us that he obeyed the command of the angel and took Mary as his wife. And all those, these events still stymie us. The, the New Testament's record of the virgin birth of our Lord was fully accepted both by Mary and Joseph. Mary knew, obviously, that it had to have been by some other means, and Joseph accepted the testimony of the angel. Now, let me say one more thing about the scriptural affirmation of this cornerstone of our faith. Not only did the Old Testament prophesy it, and then the New Testament recorded it in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, but we also know that Jesus believed the report of his own virgin birth. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, for one thing, he made sweeping claims about his own life and ministry. He said such things as, he and the Father are one. He told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in one of his most striking statements, it's found in John chapter 8, it is an I am statement. In fact, I think it is the ultimate I am statement where Jesus says at the end of John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And that means that he understands he has taken the name of God and the existence of God. So in short, he claimed to be God and no ordinary birth would account for such a claim. But more specifically, when Jesus referred to his father in Scripture, he always is referring to God. He does not refer to his father as being Joseph. In fact, Joseph is never called Jesus' father in Scripture. In Mary's famous song recorded by Luke after all of these things, Joseph isn't even mentioned. When Mary is giving praise to God for the birth of her child, Joseph is absent from the record, not in presence. When Jesus talked about his father, he was always talking about his heavenly father. In that famous passage in John chapter 14, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. Was he talking about Joseph? No, of course not. He was talking about his heavenly father and our existence in heaven. While hanging on the cross, Luke records these words from Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Who was Jesus addressing when he prayed that? He certainly was not praying to Joseph. He was praying to his father in heaven. And these are just two examples of the terminology that we consistently find in the Word of God where Jesus during his earthly ministry always uses the term Father to refer to his heavenly Father, telling us that while he obeyed Joseph and submitted to him as any child should, he knew his real Father resided in heaven. So the Old Testament prophesied the virgin birth. The New Testament records the fulfillment of that prophecy, and Jesus himself believed in his unique birth because of his relationship with the Father. All of that is scriptural affirmation 
for the virgin birth. Now, the second thing I want to talk to you about this morning is the doctrinal imperative or importance of this scriptural affirmation. In other words, you and I might accept the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin without realizing how significant that is for everything else in our faith. I want us to see this morning that our belief in the virgin birth affects several other very key elements of our doctrine. First of all, it affects our doctrine of Scripture. I have spent a large part of our time this morning sharing with you the scriptural affirmation for the belief in the virgin birth, that it literally did occur and we are to believe it. I think that's very clear in God's word. There is an old saying that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, which there's, a, there's an extra statement in there. It really ought to be God said it, that settles it doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not as to the truthfulness of the claim. If God said it, that settles it. And we've seen that God has said that Jesus was in fact born of a virgin. And yet, in spite of the clear affirmation repeatedly in Scripture, there are people, yes, even professing Christians, who do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. A liberal preacher from years ago, Harry Emerson Fosdick, once said, I don't believe in the virgin birth, and I hope you don't either. In denying the validity of this doctrine, he was simply following the early Pharisees. In one verbal battle with Jesus, the Pharisees said to Jesus, where is your father? Jesus responded by saying that if they truly knew him, they would also know the father. And later during the same discussion, the Pharisees strongly claimed that Abraham is their father. But when Jesus accuses them of not following the faith of the father they claim to know, that is Abraham, you're not even following him, they respond by saying, we are not illegitimate children. And the implication is they are charging Jesus with being illegitimate. That is that he did not have a father. Therefore, those who deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in our own day are merely following the example of the Pharisees, and that is not a very good example to follow. One commentator said, there was nothing peculiar about the birth of Jesus. He was not God incarnate. No virgin mother bore him. Rather, the church in its ancient zeal fathered a myth and became bound to it as dogma. That is, someone made it up years ago and now we're just too proud or ignorant, I suppose, to change our minds. Now, why is this past so dangerous? Because if you and I begin to pick and choose what we believe in God's word, we are on a very dangerous and the proverbial slippery slope. There is absolutely no debating that the Bible portrays Jesus as being born of a virgin. Therefore, if you and I are to deny the virgin birth, then our entire doctrine of Scripture is up in the air. We cannot believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit through the men who wrote it. We cannot believe that if we deny this doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. And if we deny this plain doctrine then we have placed ourselves in a position of authority over the Word 
And now we are free to pick and choose what it is we think the Bible says and what it does not say, which is indeed what a lot of people in our day and age are doing. I was talking to a man this past week who's a member of our church who joined this church because he got upset with something that was going on in his other church. And what he got upset about was he talked to the pastor about a particular doctrine, and the pastor said he didn't believe it. It wasn't this one. It was another one. The pastor said he did not believe it, and this man asked him, well, what do you do with what the Bible says about it? And he said, I don't believe what the Bible says about it. He was denying the doctrine, but in doing it, he was denying Scripture. And when you deny Scripture, you place yourself in a position over Scripture, and now Scripture has no authority at all. We are the ones with the authority, and that's what people want these days. But if God can make Adam out of the dust of the ground... And if God can create Eve from Adam's rib, then surely he can determine that his son can take on flesh without the normal means of conception. Is anything too hard for God? That is the question that was asked in the famous dialogue with Abraham and Sarah. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, but at this point they were well beyond the age of bearing children. They were mocking at this promise of God, and so this question was posed to them. Is there anything too hard for God? And the answer is clearly no. He proved it in that case. Sarah gave birth when she was well past the age of childbearing, and we see it here as well. But not only is our doctrine of Scripture at stake, our doctrine of salvation is at stake as well. Now, there is, again, great debate as to the nature and necessity of the incarnation. That's the theological word we use to talk about God becoming flesh, incarnate, incarnation. You see, God the Son was not born that night in Bethlehem. We talk about Jesus' birth. We talk about his birthday. But the fact is, Jesus is eternal. He has always existed and always will, but he took on flesh on that night. He took on humanity. So so was the virgin birth necessary for the plan of salvation? And the answer is yes. In order for our sins to be atoned for, there had to be pure blood. Now, if you are ever in need of a blood transfusion, you will be happy to know that the hospital and doctors go to great lengths to ensure, as best they can, that the blood they are going to give you is of pure nature. There are no imperfections in it. God demanded a pure sacrifice, which meant that Jesus had to be without sin. He cannot die for your sin if he has his own sin to attend for, to atone for. So he must be pure which means he is without sin. So many believe that the virgin birth was necessary so that Jesus did not inherit the sin nature that all men and women receive at birth. And I think a very compelling case can be made that belief in the virgin birth is doctrinally imperative. That is, this is a necessity when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. I don't mean by that that you must understand all of this in order to be saved, but I do mean that it is linked together So that if you deny the virgin birth of Christ, you are in essence denying the method of atonement. And since there is only one method of atonement, you are denying atonement across the board. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that Jesus clearly believed in the virgin birth. He made no bones about the fact that God in heaven was his father. He took the abuse when people said things like, isn't this Mary's son? That's not the way you spoke in the first century. 
It was a male-dominated society, like it or not, and therefore you did not talk about who your mother was. You talked about who your father was. And that's why when you see the genealogies in the Bible, it is always this father begat that person. And so when they asked him, is the, or when they said of him, is this not Mary's son, that was a jab at him. They were basically saying he was not born of a virgin. He was an illegitimate child. So we must conclude that if Jesus believed it, he was mistaken. If we don't believe it, then therefore Jesus, who we've already claimed did believe it, he must have then been mistaken. And if he was mistaken about his origin, that is, if he is in actuality an illegitimate child, then if he's mistaken about that, he's mistaken about a host of other things, including his deity, his purpose, and ultimately his reason for dying and rising again. If Jesus was mistaken on such an important issue, then we can't believe anything else he said, including when he said that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. If Jesus is wrong about such an important issue, then he cannot be trusted on any issue. And if Jesus is not the Son of God, then he did not fulfill the Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah, and we ought to wait for someone else, and he can't be our Savior. Therefore, the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ not only impacts our doctrine of Scripture, it impacts our doctrine of salvation. And thirdly, I would say to you that it also impacts our doctrine of the supernatural. It is common knowledge that those who doubt or even deny the virgin birth have trouble with the other miracles that are recorded in God's Word as well. When we start concluding that the Bible is wrong and that God is not capable of doing something, Jesus cannot be virgin born because that is not just the way, that's just not the way it happens. If that is our conclusion, then it is a short walk to conclude that God is not capable of doing many other things recorded in his word. As we look through the Gospel of Mark for the bulk of this year, we saw many miracles. We saw such things as Jesus walking on water, Jesus calming a storm, Jesus multiple times feeding thousands of people with mere morsels of food. We saw Jesus raising someone from the dead. Now, if he is not born of a virgin, and God is not capable of doing that, then all of those other things now become myth and folklore rather than miracles. And again, it is well known that once you begin to deny the virgin birth of Christ, the next step is generally to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either God is capable of the supernatural or he is not. So those who deny the virgin birth of Jesus obviously believe the latter. And that is why I say this is a hugely important issue because it affects our doctrine of Scripture, it affects our doctrine of salvation, and it affects our doctrine of the supernatural in general. Is God able to work miracles? Well, I trust that I have at least accomplished the realization that the virgin birth is affirmed in Scripture and is doctrinally imperative. But I want to conclude by talking about the fact that it must be personally embraced. That is, you have to come to terms with this. It is not enough just to acknowledge the, the statements. It is not enough just to have some head knowledge of the truth. It must be personally applied like any other doctrine for it to be any good at all. 
In fact, if you have merely a head knowledge, it's actually a detriment because you will be held accountable on the basis of that knowledge. A study some years ago in the New York Times, it was published in the New York Times, I don't know who did it, said that 83% of Americans believe in the virgin birth of Christ. That number overall is now down to a survey given last year to 66%. A huge drop-off in the overall, this is not Christian versus non-Christian, this is just overall people, no matter their religion, who believe in the virgin birth. Overall, in the, in the Christian realm, that is if you confine it to those who define themselves as Christian, it's down to 85%. On the other hand, if you ask those who seldom or never attend church, do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? 37% said they did. Now, I recognize that we might say that number's low, but what boggles my mind is that number is so high. I mean, why would anybody who never comes to church or has nothing to do with religion affirm that Jesus is born of a virgin? All of that tells me simply this, that just believing in the virgin birth is not nearly enough. That's a starting place. We do need to believe that, but it is not nearly enough. We must personally embrace it. Mary embraced the incredible reality that the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And while we are tempted to conclude that that was easy for her after hearing from God and knowing her own circumstances, that still took a tremendous amount of faith. It certainly did for Joseph as well. I mean, have you ever thought about what Mary's parents must have said to Joseph? Come on, buddy. Is that really the argument you're going with? That can't possibly be what happened. And yet these people, by faith believed in what the angel announced. It is easy to immerse ourselves in the details and the, the implications of the, the Christmas message, but we need to see the overriding emphasis. Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is the message and the meaning of Christmas, and that is the message and the meaning behind the virgin birth. And that is a message that must be personally embraced. It is not enough for us to go away from here this morning saying, I know that Mary and Joseph believed that Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit. It is not enough for us to go away from here this morning saying, I know that Jesus himself believed that he was born of a virgin. The real question is what you and I are going to do with the message, God with us. I know we traditionally save this kind of sermon for the closest Sunday to Christmas, which is not today. That's next week. But why save the the meaning and the message of Christmas until the last moment when Christmas is almost over? Christmas is the celebration of God becoming man that we then might become children of God. That's the core message of Christmas. God became man, that is the incarnation So that we who were enemies of God and separated because of our sin might be reconciled to God. And there is no other way to be saved. So God broke into human history in the form of a baby who was and is God. The one who cried in that manger is the one who created. 
But this message will never accomplish anything in your life until you personally embrace it. So have you confessed your belief, not just in the message of Christmas, but I'm talking about in the man behind the message, that is in Jesus Christ himself. The events in Bethlehem so many years ago, I acknowledge they are truly difficult to understand. The star in the east and the animals in the stable, we can wrap our heads around that. That's not so difficult. There was no room in the inn. We get it. The visit of the Magi bringing presents, the choice of the lodging, perhaps even the wisdom in having a pregnant woman travel so far by whatever means they traveled is a little harder for us to grasp, but the incarnation, that boggles our mind. Someone has said infinite and an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe, and yet needing to be carried in his mother's arms, king of angels, and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. I acknowledge that the virgin birth is difficult to understand. But rather than quibble over the events that took place so many years ago, I'm urging us to fall on our knees by faith, trusting in what the Scriptures have revealed to us, and knowing that God loved us enough to become one of us, so that we not only embrace the facts of Christmas, but we may by faith grasp and believe the man of Christmas, that we might by faith be saved from our sins, from that Lord and Savior who was born in Bethlehem. Let me pray.